True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, and Sweatin Live. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Tiso Blackstar Group or any of its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to the first in our interview segments. TCSA People. I've mentioned on a few occasions that I wanted to start interviewing people related to the true crime arena. And when I covered the serial killer Moses Otoli in episode 9 last week, I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to start. This week I'm chatting to one of our listeners, Charmaine O'Neill. In 2004 and 2005, Charmaine visited Moses in prison as part of a church group, and she became pen pals with him. In today's interview, she discusses her experiences and reads us parts of the letters that Moses sent to her. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information in our show notes. Thank you very, very much for agreeing to be interviewed. I really do appreciate it. Pleasure. Maybe just to introduce you to the listeners, can you maybe give us an idea of what you do at the moment? Because I know, uh, obviously, we're Facebook friends, and I've seen you're involved in genealogy. Okay, I'm from the corporate world, but once we got retrenched, I bought a van and I joined my partner on the road. So basically, I'm a gate technician and a driver, a gate tool girl, a tool girl and a driver. However, I do have a lot of interest in finding people that have been adopted, their families. I get involved in some criminal cases. It depends where I am and what's happening at the time. I'm very easily and readily to jump in and to assist. I've been into court cases where people have been assaulted. So, yes, anything to do with investigation, that's, it intrigues me. Okay, awesome. That's very interesting. So the reason that I asked to interview you was because we were chatting about Moses Satole on the True Crime South Africa page, and you commented on the feed saying that you had met Moses Satole. You actually <laughs> you put a picture on there which I found quite quite interesting, where you'd received it from Moses, and at the bottom it said, created specially for you by Moses Satole. So when I decided to cover the case, that's the reason that I contacted you. Maybe you can just give an idea of how it sort of came about that you've met Moses? Okay, I was involved in prison ministry, but not ministry as such. I didn't go into preach. One of the girls that I knew had been arrested and had disappeared off the face of the earth. Once I found her, I used to go into Sun City, the Johannesburg prison, and she was studying to be involved with children and to be a teacher. So I was pretty much involved there. Then from there, I went from prison to prison, and I would teach embroidery, say, for example, in Heidelberg prison, and then went to Hunpant. 
And at the same time, I was reading Mickey Pistorius's books of serial killers in this country. I had a fascination for that. And I needed to understand what goes on in the mind of a killer. And I asked a psychologist once, and she said to me, it's because I don't understand evil. For me, it is only good or bad. And then in one of the Bible study groups I had joined, there were a couple that used to go and visit him in prison, and I begged them if I could please go with, because I needed to see what a serial killer's hands looked like and what their eyes looked like, because I can a lot of times get a feeling about somebody once I see their eyes, and that's how I ended up going to see Moses. So, interesting that a psychologist of all people would say to you that you don't understand evil, because I think that's quite a strange statement for a psychologist to make, because they would usually take the sort of scientific approach to, you know, the mental illness side and that, that sort of thing. Um, I think that because I'm very much a black-white person, I don't understand gray area. So for me, something's either right or wrong. And she said that my brain specifically doesn't comprehend evil. So I think that she was just trying to put it into perspective for me that I was fascinated by the bad side to know what makes somebody tick. Why would they go to the extent of murdering somebody and why to the, specifically in this case, the methods he used. I see, I see. So the day you knew that you were going to go into the prison and you were going to meet Moses, what was running through your mind? Honestly, I was quite anxious because I've also always had nightmares that I would be in prison one day, I'm not sure why, and being locked up behind all those doors. So I knew now this was a C-max, it was a maximum security. So the, the what I'd experienced before by going behind a door and then behind another door and being locked in and not being able to get out, I was probably going to experience it even worse going in to see Moses. So, yes, it uh, it was quite an anxious moment, but also quite a thrilling moment because it was something I'd waited to do for a long, long time. And I think when you're running on adrenaline, what gives you the guts to actually continue or proceed with what your goal was in the first place? All right, so you are headed into the C-Max prison. This is the C-Max in Pretoria. Yes, that's correct. Quite different from the other prisons because if I recall, and memories are a little bit vague, It's situated higher up. So there was a lot of plantation, and then you were escorted up into the CMAX, where the other prisons are quite clinical and quite cold. For those of us who have never been into a prison before, just so that we can picture you going in there, what sort of security measures are taken as you go into the prison? I'm sure there's searches and that sort of thing. Yes, there are. There's searches at the initial gates. I'm talking for all prisons. For example, I'll go to Sun City Prison. Once you get onto the bus and you reach the top at the women's prison where I used to go into, you are searched again. And once you go inside into the prison, you are searched again. So there are specific things you cannot take in with you. Basically, you would walk in with an ID book and if you had prearranged to take specific goods in. For a waiting trial prisoner, there's different things that you can take compared to a convicted prisoner. For most of us, the only idea we have of prison is, you know, what we see on TV. So what does the area actually look like that you would meet these guys in? For a normal prisoner in other prisons, it would be an open area. almost looks like you're sitting at a bus station, so there would be benches. And you wouldn't be able to really identify a prisoner. I know the very first time I was quite shocked because they also their prison outfits, uniforms, if you can call it that, 
So in the women's prison, they would put slits at the back and make pleats. They would be wearing makeup. Their prison uniform was, if I recall, a blue one, and it had pretty flowers on it. So it would be your normal neighbor next door. You wouldn't recognize them. You're always looking for somebody that looks different. You're looking for somebody that you can identify as this is a bad person. And when they're sitting amongst you, you can't. In C-Max, it was different. He was in a prison uniform, and we saw him behind glass. Because of the crime he committed, you cannot have contact with him, so you would talk behind glass. Ah, okay. All right. And are there like intercoms on either side, or are you just talking sort of straight through the glass? Honestly, I can't remember. There must have been because we could hear each other quite clearly. So okay. I remember that, again, I wanted to see his hands. So when the people that I will work prayed, he put his hands up. Every one had their hands up on the glass between us. And I remember putting my hand against his hand, obviously with the glass between us. So I could picture how big his hand was. I can't remember how big it was. But I needed to see, does this hand that could take somebody's life, does it look like our hand? Or did it look differently? I think that's something that is probably common to how a lot of people think about killers, not necessarily just people that kill so prolifically, but anyone that can take a life. You always wonder, how are they different to me? And I guess, as you've said, the truth is that they are no different to you. They look exactly like any person you could walk past on the street, which is, I guess, one of the scariest parts. (laughs) I think that's why it can always be your neighbor next door and people say, I didn't know. Absolutely. So did Moses know that you were coming? Yes, he did. They do tell them what happens when you get in. Like Again, I will talk normal prison to Moses' imprisonments, is that you would fill out a little piece of paper requesting the prisoners that you'd like to see. So then they go with that piece of paper to the prisoner, and then the prisoner agrees whether they'd like to see you or not. And then they call the prisoner forward, and he comes through. So in a normal prison, when I was in the women's prison, I would call four or five prisoners at the same time because some of them never got visitors. But with Moses, it was obviously only Moses that we saw. And the Afrikaans prisoners from the Folkstart that were in prison, the Ferdy Barnard and them, They were actually in the background. I wouldn't have recognized them. The people I was with pointed them out to me. So behind the glass, they seemed to walk quite freely. All right. That's interesting. So he comes in. It was yourself and how many other people from this group that visited him? It was myself and my partner at the time. And then the two people that were involved in prison ministries. And the person that was involved, he was an ex-prisoner himself. So he promised God that he would open Matthew 24 if God ever, if he ever left prison. So I think that that's why the person I was with had started his own ministry and he understood prisoners because he came out of prison. In total, to answer your question, four of us. Okay. All right. And how many women out of those four? Two. Two women and two males. So as he entered, you know, what was sort of first impression? Was he sort of friendly guy? Was he more withdrawn? What was your first impression of him? I think my first impression was quite astounding because if you've read Mickey Pistorius's books, you will see a picture of him in there, and he looks terrible. He looks, he looks like I would picture a prisoner. Yet this man that came out, his face was so light and so 
clean, if that makes sense to you. His eyes were bright. He looked like my friend. That's what he looked like. There was none of that picture like when he was arrested. I was looking for this hardened person, and he wasn't. He was just so filled with light inside of him. That's the only way I can explain it. That must have taken you aback quite significantly because I probably wouldn't expect that either. And also, he was extremely friendly. That's something that I I picked up quite a lot in researching the case was that I think one of the reasons he was so successful in manipulating his victims was because he was apparently a very charming, friendly guy. Was that your impression of him as well? Yes, very much. Very charming person. And in fact, we corresponded by letters later on, and you will see the charm come out in the letters. So I got a clear picture of how he enticed his people. Because if you use that same charm, it was very easy to befriend him. In your initial visit with him, did you, I know you said you guys prayed for him. Did you have much time to to chat with him, to converse with him about day-to-day stuff? I honestly don't remember going into lengthy conversations with him. But according to his letters, I impressed him the first time I was there with the conversation and the positiveness that I had. But I don't remember what I said to him. Maybe in the nervousness, I've kind of blocked it out over the years. But it obviously did make an impact. And that's why he was ready to probably write to me. And another thing is that I was told before that they can never change. You cannot reform or rehabilitate a serial killer. So I knew that I wanted his story. I think my main objective somewhere down the line was to befriend him to see if he would open up to me, that he could explain to me what goes on in the mind of a serial killer. But the the half an hour or 40 minutes that we saw him the first time was not enough time to even discuss anything like that. It it needed time to build a relationship to kind of broach that kind of subject. In speaking to you now, I mean, you come across as a very confident person you come across as the type of person that is you know very easy to talk to I guess I can sort of understand you know how he would feel almost comfortable with you immediately at the end of that initial meeting was there any indication from either side that you wanted the communication to continue yes I think that I asked him if I could write to him and he agreed I'm not sure how we, how I gave him my address at that point. I think I perhaps got the address from the people that I was with because they were in constant contact with him. They are the people that organized him a computer in prison. So if, if I remember, I think that I got the address. He did agree for me to write him, and that's how it started. That's how we kept contact for a short period. Okay. All right. So how long approximately after you initially saw him, when would you say, did you send the first letter? Yes, I would have sent the first letter. Okay, and how long approximately afterwards was that, do you remember? It would have probably been immediate, immediately, so possibly in the following week. I can read you parts of the letters. First of all, it happened in 2004, so it is a very long time ago. For example, he says, Can I ask you a question? Why do you write such a touching letter for me? This letter really breaks my heart into pieces. First, I thank you. If you truly feel that it was nice seeing and visiting me, please pass my greetings to your friend. I think that you are a very special person. Good heart. 
tell me the many different reasons. I'd like to know early things, for that will help me to know, care, and handle the relationship. Now, that word relationship freaked me out a little bit because he kind of immediately cut the person I was with as, okay, so he was a tag-along, but you and I now have a relationship. We have a friendship from his side. That's what he's saying. You are very beautiful and calling me sweetie and using words that were making me very uncomfortable because you are the strange person. And I felt like you crossed that line very quickly. You started to see it as a relationship, and that was never my intention. That is first response back to you or one one of the first? I think that was the first response back to me. He says, yeah, I pray, hope, and believe that our relationship or friendship would not reach the point where I would hear you telling me that I did something you do not like. So... It seemed like it was important, Nicole, that he was light. I do not say that I will be perfect. I know my shortcomings, weaknesses, and strong points. Let me say this. The only thing I can promise you is this. I would never take you for granted or manipulate you in any way. Please believe if I say something to you, you must know that I mean what I say, and I say what I mean and feel. I also promise to be open, honest, and truthful in everything. Unless, if I feel that that chapter of the situation or discussion is closed in my life, I have things that I do not want to bring up again. Never. It's amazing to me that he dives so deeply into these types of conversations so quickly, and I can understand why that took you aback. I think that my purpose was kind of shut down there because he's saying to me, There are certain things we are never going to discuss. So what the the perception I got was we are prepared to discuss things between me and you and maybe what God has done in our lives. But if you're taking me back to the place I come from, we are never going to discuss that. What's interesting is that, and I think I mentioned this to you in one of our messages, and it's around this exact same time there was an author. She initially made contact with him in and he had ignored her for several years, and then eventually he made contact with her around the same time that you were communicating with him. He had asked her to write his biography. She had been visiting him, and, you know, she started the project. He had also started to become very early on, he became quite a a lot more personal than she wanted him to. So I wonder if it was saying to you outright, we're not discussing my crimes to a certain extent. That wasn't him reacting to how this author, that you know, their whole interaction. It's a possibility. My letters yeah, are dated because I photocopied everything I wrote to him as well in case anything ever happened to me. And it wasn't like today where there were cell phones that could put a hit on me. And I also gave a PO box address, not my physical address. But I know that there were ways and means. But I have correspondence from December 2004 right up until Feb 2005, and then I don't see another later stamp. I have November, sorry, as well, 2004. And he never, ever wrote to me by hand. He always typed to me, which was quite interesting. Did you respond saying you don't, you understand he doesn't want to discuss his crimes, or did you sort of just skip over that? I just skipped over it. I thought within time I would might be able to 
bring him back to the point. There's another piece I want to read to you here. Charmaine, I cannot turn the hands of time, even if I wish I could. I couldn't. I cannot change what happened. Nevertheless, if I can be given a chance to do better, oh, believe me, I would. Life does not always dish positive things. One of the things that I've no- I have notes in my life is that we differ the way we take our problems, troubles, and difficulties, the way we face these. Not all of our reactions are good. Someone once said that problems do not leave us the same. This means that they can either destroy or build us. True that. Is my interpretation of black as white, as you say, right, that it stands for right and wrong, or good or bad? Is that what you used to saw? Is it correct to say that grey area is the mixture of two colours? If that is the case, does this mean that you are now saying that you come to know that no one is totally bad or good? Is that what you say? If it is, so allow me to thank the Lord for opening your eyes, mind, heart, soul, and spirit. Oh, please tell me if you think I missed the point regarding this area. But let me say it now, that I look to your face. I see a very strong person. And reading your letter, I sense that you are determined and dedicated to whatever you do and say. You said it yourself, that in turn, these situations has taught you compassion, understanding, and empathy. You have learned a lesson that you cannot find in any school, college, or university for that matter. You know, life has its strange ways of teaching us things we cannot find by a normal way. You know, if you just read that to me and I didn't know who was writing it, I would think that guy's got a really good understanding of humanity and, you know, he's a wise guy. And then if you consider the fact that we know who's writing it, does that really change that? Because I sort of agree with him that, no, we aren't all good and we're not all bad. There is a mixture in this. Moses Satoli is quite a wise guy. Would you agree? I think that he is. I think that he has plenty wisdom. I think that he tries to understand. I think he analyzes the person he's dealing with to see where they are coming from, how smart they are. I think he uses that to his advantage. So he's a manipulator in his own right. But the way that he he presents it shows a caring. I'm listening to you, Charmaine. Explain to me. I really want to understand this. That's how I see it. But because, as you said, we know who it's coming from and we understand how the crimes were committed, it makes a lot of sense why people were drawn to him because he probably was very attentive to those people as well. You don't have a job. Let me help you. Let me take you. Come with me. So the people are drawn to somebody else's kindness. I fully agree with you. So after those initial letters, what would you say? I mean, you, you did already say in the, in, that in the first letter you started getting warning signs. What led you to eventually cut off contact with him? Okay, before we go, there, there is one more little piece that I'd like to read. And then yeah. well, let me answer your question first. I think it. It was all the little lovey words and sweetie and relationship. And I let it go initially. And then it started to make me uneasy because it was becoming too intense. I think that's what it was. Too intense, too quickly for me. He was paying too much attention to me, to my thoughts, to how I was feeling. And I'm not used to that attention from the outside world. And yes, somebody that just shows too much care. And that frightened me. And also, I didn't want to mislead him. 
I didn't want to disappoint him because I didn't know where he was in his head at that place. So by my reaction, because of his rejection by his mother previously and being accused of the rape previously, and now I came along and I rejected him in an ugly way. I was scared of the implications. And he always had an urgency about the letters. I never got a letter from you. It's been five days. I've checked every day. He was putting pressure on me to write, and it was easier for me to go away. You know, like something could have happened to me, and that's why I didn't write. So I don't ever recall sending a letter and saying, this will be the last time. I just disappeared. This is a little piece I wanted to read. Charmaine, the Lord has done wonderful things for me and continues to do so. Sometimes I wonder, why me? Listen, my life has been broken pieces from long ago and at a very early age and never thought that God cares about me. When nobody cares, you also don't care what happened. You do not even care about what you are doing and do not care whatever people think or feel about you. Things happened in my life and I reacted to them very badly. It was during my trial that someone introduced me to the Lord. So basically that's the part I wanted to read, that he was in a place where he didn't care. I want to interject here for a moment, because when I went back to listen to the recording of the interview, I realized a strange thing. Moses' words are so well put together, and so unlike what I was expecting, that I was drawn in for a minute. For a very brief second, it almost seemed as though this guy could be someone I could have a conversation with. And then I remembered what Moses Satole was really good at, manipulating people. And finally, I almost understood how more than 40 women could have been convinced and lured by him. I wanted to clarify that because I realized that my reaction may sound a little odd. Moses is a highly intelligent human being. There's no doubt about that. But he uses his intelligence for evil. And my description of him as wise is not intended to diminish that in any way. Let's get back to the interview. How many letters had been exchanged by that time, would you say? More cards. So the main letter, I thought I had a second letter. I just can't seem to find it. But he made me cards. So he made me Psalm 91, computerized on beautiful paper, like a photographic kind of paper. And then he made me two cards. And the one says, the best friends, Charmaine, are fellow travelers on the road of life. The best friends change and grow with each other and learn through one another's experiences and letters. And he hand wrote, it's the first time I think I've seen his handwriting. And he wrote inside and said, you are special, M. Sutole. And then he made me a second card. I love you. You see, that freaked me out a little bit. Oh, wow. In a heart. And he wrote, I love to hear you laugh, to see the sparkle in your eyes. And inside it says, I love our conversations and the silences we share. When it's enough, just knowing we have one another there, your friend Moses Sutole. So I can fully understand why that set all the alarms off in your head because that's something you get from a a boyfriend or a crush or a you know not a guy that you're a pen pal with in prison. I know his childhood wasn't great, and I wonder if there wasn't almost a bit of like 
emotional stunting there where he doesn't really understand how to relate to people. Possibility, because this card, now that I'm opening, it says it's actually a happy Valentine's Day card, Charmaine, love with Moses. There's a whole piece inside. So he was, he's looking. He's been rejected by a woman, from what I understand, his whole life. And he's yeah. hoping for someone that he can connect to. That rejection is an interesting part of who he was. I think we can't deny that, you know, certainly his mother's original actions of abandoning him would have been a form of rejection. But I almost started feeling like the woman that he raped, it's almost like he felt that they had rejected him by reporting him to the police. Like he had a very warped idea of rejection. Correct, or he had a warped idea of what rape was, that he didn't feel that he had crossed any line. And yes, so he felt betrayed. You know, he was in a, in, his mother kept taking him to an orphanage, if I recall, and he kept running back home, and then she'd load him again and take him. And that is very hard for someone to be rejected by all people, your mother. And I think that creates a lot of issues. And if you look at most serial killers, there's a mom problem. They were either overbearing or the, there was the rejection. Absolutely, yeah. Now that's a, that is definitely a running theme. You said you just cut off contact. Did he continue writing you after you cut off contact or did he just stop as well? No, he stopped as well. Here's the first letter actually that he wrote. I'll read you just the first little bit. It said, I'm writing this letter first to thank you for taking your precious time and pay me a visit. Talking to you is very, very good. Beautiful and mind-opening. True. I thank you, my dear. I think about what you said during the conversation. Your thinking is one thing that I need. I need people who are positive and optimistic about life and all other things that are happening in life. So he's very analytical. He's looking all the time. And looking back in hindsight now, I'm actually sorry that I stopped writing to him. But I don't know what situation today that I can possibly be found that I should maybe open that door again or do I leave that door closed? Personally, I think that you, you know, seeing what he was doing and the way that the, his conversation was going, I think you did the right thing. Um, that's just my opinion. You're used to dealing with, you know, situations where there's high emotions and people are in bad situations, but... I can only think that something like that would have been very taxing emotionally on you in the long term if you'd continued. I think so too. And I definitely yeah. did have an un start getting an uneasy feeling. As I say, too intense, too quickly. Definitely felt that he felt this was a relationship, which it was far from. And at no yeah. point did I indicate that there was a relationship. That's why I copied the letters that I wrote to him. It was very yeah. much about my life, and you know what? Good has happened out of my situation. Good can happen to yours, and try to encourage him in those ways. I tried not to be judgmental, because by judging, I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere with that. Even though I had my personal feeling about it, but I just didn't feel that I needed to, to discuss that with him. I needed to have an open channel that he would talk to me. Sure. As you mentioned earlier, you know, most serial killers will never be rehabilitated. I think we can actually say that all serial killers will never be rehabilitated. Don't think that anything that you could have said or done in your letters could have helped him in the long term. 
you know, I don't think it ever would have really changed his his real mindset. No, absolutely. So we know why you wanted to make contact with him in the beginning. You said that you were curious. Do you feel like you sated that curiosity? Does do you feel like you got what you wanted out of the interaction? Yes, I think I did. I think it was first of all a victory for me just to go into a, a CMAX prison. Secondly, it was good for me to see what a serial killer looked like so that I could get life into perspective because I tend to help people in a lot of situations. And like I said, for me to understand bad, it's like I can fix anything. So if you're bad, it doesn't matter, I'll fix it. And I needed to realize that I couldn't fix this. And there's a lot of things in life I can't fix as much as I'd like to. So it did definitely put things into perspective for me. And... And to realize that these people amongst us look just like us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very important lesson to all of us. You know, we, we hear it over and over again, but I think you saw it with your own eyes. And I think you also saw that other side of him. I think you did get a sneak peek into the, the if I want to call it, the real Moses Satole. Because even though you might not have fitted his victim profile, you were a woman. And I think that he did try his manipulation tactics on you. True. And something that always sticks in my head is when Mickey Pistorius walked in the room, he started masturbating. And that was a a terrible thing to do. And what kind of person would actually go to that extent? So there's definitely a very sick part to his brain. It's... Not necessarily the person that was in front of me. You know what? I'm not over-religious, and God can change anybody. I'm not saying they can't. But with my experiences with other prisoners, once they come out, even if it's a a small crime, they're back to where they were. In fact, the girl I visited for four years, when she came out, didn't even come and see me, and I was carrying makeup and clothing and things for babies. I took Bucky loads in. I was dealing with a captain in the prison. So it shows me that it doesn't matter how much the sweet talkers in there. They are vulnerable. They can't get out. They need to tell you what you need to hear. But yeah. once they are out, they are not the same person that they were inside prison. That's very true. That's that's an interesting way to look at it because it makes you also put sort of any prison interview into a different perspective because are they really telling you the truth or are they telling them what they want to hear because either they want to continue the the interaction or they don't want to continue the interaction the thing is like even this conversation now is triggering how is he doing has he changed so now it's raising a whole lot of questions in my head do I go back and try and find out what, how Moses has progressed in the last 20 years or 16 years or however long it is? Charmaine, thank you so much for agreeing to participate in the interview and for sharing your experiences with us. I really do appreciate it. Pleasure. I find the letters from Moses fascinating for a few reasons. He has this way, as Charmaine said, of telling you exactly what you want to hear. But at the same time, 
he seems to have absolutely no idea what is appropriate behavior in terms of communication. Where other people are happy to start a pen pal friendship with niceties, casual banter and introductions, Moses jumps straight to the terms of endearment and even tells people he loves them. I also found that his letters seemed to be very much about him, and even when he was discussing other people, it was always in relation to himself. I guess that speaks to his narcissism. I hope you enjoyed our first interview. I'd like to thank Charmaine O'Neill again for participating. I think you gave us all lots of food for thought. I'd love to hear what you think about Moses' letters, and you can reach out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. As always, thank you for your support and encouragement, and I'll chat to you soon.